Well, good morning. This is episode seven for July 19th, 2020. I'm Larry Castle, and this is Ken Brown. Welcome to That's a Good Question. We are on week three, uh, talking about the Supreme Court and uh, how it works, why it matters to us as Christians. And uh, it ended its 2019-2020 uh, term last week. And so they're in the news a lot. All of the decisions that have come down are being talked about. And uh, some of those decisions affected areas that we really care about as Christians, moral issues um, that are important to us. They re released decisions in the last few weeks that touch on the topics of abortion, LGBTQ rights, uh, whether Christian or other private schools can be eligible for some forms of state aid, and whether religious organizations can hire only those whose beliefs and practices are consistent with those of the organization, uh, whether those they, they can fire those who don't believe and practice that way. Mm -hmm. Those are really important issues yeah. to us as Christians. So the Supreme Court should matter to us, and uh, we want to continue that conversation today then about um, how it works, how, how people get on the Supreme Court, and how this as well we want to get to today, how this relates to the way in which we interpret another yeah. old document, an ancient document, the Bible, and uh, what that has in common with the way the Supreme Court interprets mm -hmm. uh, the old document we know as our Constitution. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's begin today reminding folks uh, where we were at when we left off last time. Okay. Well, uh, two weeks ago, we were reminded of what most of us hopefully learned in junior high and uh, in our civics class about how our structure of government is set up by our Constitution. And we saw then that we have three branches of government. We have the uh, legislative branch, that's Congress. We have the executive branch, and that's the president. And then we have the judicial branch. And that's the federal courts, including the, the Supreme Court. And we saw that the framers wisely did not trust human nature. And so they baked in to the structure of the Constitution ways to keep power in check. Uh, they definitely did not trust humans who amassed power that could be used against others. And so they, in addition to having three separate branches, they also implemented in the Constitution some checks and balances so that those branches can not amass power that can be used against any of the, any of the others. So you see checks and balances with the federal courts in that the two other branches, the legislative and the executive, they both play a role in who gets on the court but the courts are also given protection from being controlled by either of the others. So, for example, the president nominates judges to the federal judiciary, including the Supreme Court, but then the Senate has to vote to confirm the judges, and if they don't vote to confirm, then the president has to choose someone else. Now, if you just left it at that, then it would be possible for judges to be coerced in some way mm. by either the president or by a senator. The president could say, you agree to rule this way or I'm not going to nominate you. Mm -hmm. Or the Senate could say, you agree to rule this way or you're not going to get my vote to be confirmed. Or even once they're on the bench, the president could say, I don't like the way you're ruling. I'm going to remove you 
or Congress could say, we don't like the way you're ruling, and so we're going to reduce your pay. But the framers anticipated both of those, and they gave some protections to judges from all of that. The Constitution says that uh, federal judges' salaries cannot be reduced for that very reason. And the president cannot remove a judge once the judge is on the federal bench. Congress can do that, but only by impeachment. That's a very cumbersome process, and it's only been used a relatively handful of times over the years. And federal judges, we're not talking about state courts here, by the way. So state courts have their own system. This is the, the federal bench, including the highest court, the Supreme Court. But federal judges are on for life. So that's until they die or until they retire. Okay, so that's a, that's a pretty good summary. Uh, there are the nine justices on the Supreme Court. And um, what you've described is how they get appointed. Mm -hmm. And um, Senate confirms after the president nominates, they're on there for life, all important aspects of this uh, for them to be able to carry out their work um, mm -hmm. without uh, coercion, so mm -hmm. to speak. But so what causes, we started talking about last week, what causes the divides then on mm -hmm. these important issues that we care so much about, these moral issues, um, gay marriage, religious liberty issues, abortion, mm -hmm. uh, these are often a really sharp divide on the court, and many of those decisions come down to a 5-4 decision of those nine justices. Why is that? Mm. Well, this gets us to where we left off then uh, last time. We've said that the courts become more controversial in the last several decades, and that's because our culture has become a post-Christian culture, and so now issues that are at odds with Christian belief and a Christian worldview now find themselves bubbling up to the Supreme Court uh, and their ruling on the role of religion in society, on the role of religion and morality in the law. More and more of those kinds of cases have been going through the federal court system and up to the Supreme Court over the last few decades. Not only are the issues themselves, we said last week, more polarizing than they've been in the past, but also the approach that the judges take to deciding those cases adds to the controversy. We saw last week that there are two broad schools of thought with regard mm -hmm. to how to interpret the Constitution. One is called originalism, and then the other is what we called, and others call, a living Constitution, an evolving Constitution. So an originalist uh, tries to determine how the words were understood by those who composed them or by those who first heard them, had those words delivered to them. The living constitution approach says that the meaning's not fixed in the past, but rather it changes with the time. So here's an example of that. You have the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution, and that has the wording that uh, punishments cannot be cruel and, unu and unusual. So it prohibits cruel, quote, cruel and unusual punishments. So what would be considered cruel and unusual? And one of the ways that's come to the fore over the years is with regard to capital punishment. Is it cruel and unusual from a constitutional perspective to have a, the life taken of an offender who commits what the law deems to be a capital offense? Now an originalist would say, when those words were originally written at the end of the 18th century, the late 1700s, 
that capital punishment was practiced all over the place. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in some very weird ways, uh, ways that are completely foreign to the way capital punishment would be practiced now. It would be considered much more humane now than the way it was then. So an originalist would say, no one who wrote that and no one who received that originally would have thought that the mere act of capital punishment is cruel and unusual. But a living constitution, an evolving constitution approach says, but society has changed. Mm. And so the meaning of those words changes with the values of the society over time. And so you find that one side ruling one way on capital punishment cases, the other side ruling another way. Hmm. That's, that is, a, uh, to me, a, a disturbing thought to think that the words could change meaning without us having to actually consciously discuss hmm. how that should change. Huh? Hmm. So, um, so those decisions, though, that we're talking about are often so close. Yeah. Five, four, why is that? Well, you know, we bounce uh, from Republican presidents mm. to Democrat presidents. In my lifetime, 40 years as an adult, uh, I have lived through 40 years of pre different presidents. Of those 40 years, I was counting it up uh, before our session that 24 of those 40 years, there have been Republican presidents, 16 of those years have been Democrat presidents. And each of them has opportunities, if a justice dies or retires, to then nominate. And they are going to nominate different kinds of justices. We'll see how that comes about in just a bit. But, but that's the reason so that right now on the court with nine justices, you have four who were appointed by Democrat presidents. You have five that were appointed by Republican presidents. So... But the presidents, as they nominate them, they don't ask, what's right. your political affiliation? Right. Or did you vote for me last time? Right. Or what do you, what's your view of? Right. Yeah. So, so, uh, so how is it that we still end up with this even split? Yeah. Well, they don't have to do that. You know, they don't have to ask directly, did you vote for me? Are you a Republican? Are you a Democrat? And as far as we know, I, in, in my adult life, I've never heard it reported by any justice that was interviewed that this is a question that the president or the administration asked me. So they're not asked, are you a Democrat? Are you a Republican? But they don't, they don't have to do that. And the reason is this. Thoughtful people and all of the justices that are on the, the Supreme Court, and I'm sure uh, most, if not all, of those on the federal bench as a whole, are smart, thoughtful people. And they choose their politics based on their philosophy, not their philosophy based on their politics. Hmm. It goes in that order. You have your philosophy and your politics flows out of that. So if you can get someone's philosophy, then you can have a fairly reliable predictor of where they're going to come down on, on issues. And that's then how administrations, how presidents then vet potential justices for the, the bench. They try to get what's their, what's their philosophy. Certain philosophies play out in one direction, uh, others play out in another direction. So here's, here's what I mean by that. If you're a thoughtful, conservative Republican, for example, you are that because you have, in part, because you have a particular philosophy, a particular view of human nature. Mm -hmm. if, you're, if you've thought about it and you're a conservative, 
You are that because, in part, in large part, because of your view of, of human nature. Now, if you've never thought about why you're a conservative Republican, then by definition, you're not a thoughtful <laughs> conservative. And unfortunately, that's true for many, to very many of us. We just choose issues, and we don't think about what underlies those issues. And as Christians, unfortunately, we don't think about how principles of Scripture apply mm to those issues and then how that plays out. But if you have thought about it, and if you are a thoughtful conservative, it's because of what you believe about people. And if you believe that human nature is, is sinful, then you're gonna be in favor of laws uh, and institutions that tend to restrain mm -hmm. the fallen effects of human nature in society at large. So you're gonna be in favor of things that keep humans in appropriate, appropriate check. You're going to want to, now here's a key word then, you're going to want to conserve those. Mm. You're going to want to conserve those laws and those institutions, and you're going to be very wary of seeing enormous shifts away from norms that have been around for centuries, sometimes been around literally for millennia, mm -hmm. like in the case of, of marriage, mm -hmm. right? Now, on the other hand, if you're a thoughtful liberal Democrat, if you've thought about why Am I, why am I a liberal? Then you have a more optimistic view of, of human nature. So you're gonna be more willing to change past norms. That's why liberals often prefer the word to describe themselves as progressives, <laughs> that progress is being made because they're in favor of human progress in keeping with changes in human nature. Conservative doesn't believe human nature changes. Yeah. But a progressive believes that human nature itself progresses. And so we as a society need to then progress with it. Now, I want to make that distinction because everybody's in favor of progress. Whether you're a conservative or a liberal, everybody's in favor of progress. What we mean by that is just good change. Mm -hmm. But a conservative really wants to take a hard look at, is this a good change? And they are much, uh, much less inclined to adopt change, especially when it comes to changing things and institutions and laws that have been around and uh, are deemed to have served us well for a very long time. So when a president's looking for a judge to put on the Supreme Court, he doesn't need to ask about political affiliation. Political affiliation follows from one's overall philosophy of human nature, and that shows up in a judge's decisions on the bench. So what mm -hmm. a an administration can do then is just check. Most of these judges that have gotten elevated to that level, federal bench, Supreme Court, they've already had some, uh, they've already had some experience, they've already had some decisions, and so they can simply check out what those decisions are. And uh, what philosophy underlies those decisions, they can get then a good idea as to whether or not they're conservative or progressive. I see. But, uh, that, and that seems like the right order, philosophy first, politics yeah. follow. Um, but the decisions don't always break down even along those lines, the yeah. conservative versus the progressives on the bench. Right, right. right. Yeah, they don't. And uh, it's true, they don't always, but uh, almost always okay. they do. And what's interesting to me is that when a judge does leave the reservation, so to speak, you know, leaves the conservative side or leaves the liberal side, it's almost without exception in one direction. Uh, you find that on these kinds of cases, these kinds of moral issues, these societal controversial issues, that the liberal progressive justices 
almost without exception, come down the same way. And if there's going to be any movement in either direction, it's going to be one, usually just one, of the conservative justices mm. going in the, in the other direction. Now, why, why would that be? Well, if you have the progressive philosophy, that requires a judge to decide where we are as a society right now and what then is best for the society right now. And that's one of the criticisms then of that approach to judging because instead of being a judge looking just at the law, you're becoming a sort of philosopher. Mm-hmm. How should this be? In fact, Antonin Scalia used to tease his liberal colleagues that way. I saw him do it many times in his very good-natured way, but, but he meant it. He said, look, why do we need lawyers? Why don't we get philosophers? if this is the approach we're we're going to take. But if that's the approach you take, then you're thinking about where are we? And you're thinking about where should we be at this moment in time? How are things progressing? How are things moving along societally? And so their view of uh, the progress of human nature means they virtually always are going to see having more so-called freedom as an advance. So if we can free people from the shackles, if we can free people from the constraints of the past, then that's generally considered to be progress. That's considered to be a good thing. And so they they stay in that camp. Now it's not, I want to stress here, it's not that they come with a, a political agenda and then they implement that in their decisions. Rather, it's their philosophy that dictates how they interpret the living constitution and then they decide that way. So, uh, sorry, I'm being uh, <laughs> belaboring this, but why would a judge with a conservative philosophy then mm-hmm. ever side with a judge with a liberal philosophy? Well, you know, it's the same thing for them. They, just like I'm saying with uh, liberal progressive judges and have, who have that philosophy, they're not coming to it with uh, their agenda, their political agenda. And uh, I think we do a disservice uh, when we say that. You know, I. I'm not a progressive, I'm not a liberal, and so I disagree with those who have that philosophy. But I want to be fair as well. I don't mm. think they're coming with a, as a judge with a political agenda. Same thing is true for the conservative judges. They don't have a conservative agenda. I don't believe that's true. They're simply taking an approach that leads in that direction. Now, the reason then, every now and then, you get a conservative judge who goes the other way is because he believes that the original meaning of a statute or the original meaning of a portion of the Constitution requires him to to go in that way. Let me give you an example of that. Just here at the end of the term, we had a Supreme Court decision come down, and it was about, we mentioned it a couple weeks ago, about a funeral home here in Garden City, Michigan. And the owner of the funeral home is a Christian, had an employee for, I think, six years or so. I think maybe more than that. But uh, a male employee who greeted people, was a funeral director uh, at the funeral home. But uh, this uh, male employee had a sex change operation and informed uh, his, the owner of the funeral home that that was happening. And the, the owner had a religious conviction against that one and also thought it was going to be bad for business too. Mm -hmm. Ended up firing the employee. That went all the way through the federal courts, went up to the Supreme Court, and here just within the last couple of weeks, that was decided in favor of the employee and against the funeral home. The four liberal progressive justices ruled in favor. This is progress. 
But you had one of the uh, conservative judges. Actually, I take that back. You had two, but the other one, John Roberts, it's probably the case that he didn't agree. He did that for reasons of allowing him to assign who writes the opinion. I said that last week. I, again, won't bore you with, with that. Neil Gorsuch, though, sided with the liberals. He's the newest justice. He was appointed by President Trump, uh, a conservative, takes a conservative approach, but he believed that the text of the law at play here, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, required him in its original meaning hmm. for him to apply it that way. So he was being true to that. Now, his other originalist colleagues didn't agree, uh, and that's some inside pool that I won't bore you with either. So there are slight variations of even originalism. Yeah, you mentioned that last week. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but, but he was being true to his principles as best he saw them. So it wasn't because he's now switched and has a political agenda. Immediately when people hear this and you know, hear President Trump appointed this conservative justice and one of his first big cases where he writes the majority opinion, he goes in a way that nobody would have thought that he's betrayed the president or he's betrayed his principles. None of that's true. Uh, he looked at the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It says that employers cannot discriminate, quote, because of sex, those three words, mm -hmm. because of sex. And he understood that to mean then and understands that it means now that based upon one's biological sex, you cannot hire or fire. And that's what he saw happening here. And so he ruled accordingly. Okay. So you were saying uh, sometimes those with an originalist approach yeah. can differ on what was originally meant. Yeah. On occasion, they, they do, and that was the case in this uh, funeral home um, case that, that I mentioned. But generally, they agree. But there you know, really is just no human judge or judicial system of interpretation that's perfect. Conservative justice, uh, I mentioned him earlier, the late Antonin uh, Scalia, he would publicly debate his progressive colleague who's still on the court, Stephen uh, Breyer. And they would debate about their respective philosophies. And when Breyer would point out an inconsistency in Scalia's approach, Scalia would tell this story about two guys who are walking in the woods. And the one guy says to his friend, hey, what if a bear comes out of the woods? What are you going to do? And he says, I'm going to start running. He goes, you can't outrun a bear. And he says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just got to outrun you. <laughs> and then Scalia would say, you know, my system doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be better than yours. And it's, it's infinitely better than yours. And so, you know, it's, it's, not, it's never going to be perfect this side of heaven. But there is a philosophy that underlies each of these approaches. And what we need to do is know what those are and then say, which of those align best? with what we know to be truth, particularly from Scripture. So that, that then leads us to the question, yeah. which of these is a better approach as a Christian for us to take? You know, because uh, a conservative philosophy is right about human nature, and biblically it just is the case, the Bible just teaches very clearly that all human beings are born with a sin nature, and we are to use the theological term totally depraved, that we are sinful in our totality, that every part of us, it doesn't mean we commit every sin, it doesn't mean we're as sinful as we could be because there are restraints placed upon us. But it does mean that we are capable, absent restraints, and that in the totality of our person, 
we are sinful in the way we think, in the way we choose, in the way we feel, in mind and will and emotion. And so a conservative philosophy is right about sinful human nature. And if that philosophy is applied consistently, not just in judicial decision-making, but also in public policy, then it's going to be better over time for human, human flourishing because it gets who we are right. Now, I need to add this, though, for my conservative friends. Uh, and most of the people who are watching this, most of the people that, that believe what I've been laying out here, believe what the Bible teaches about human nature, are therefore, because of that, going to fall in the conservative camp. So most of you all watching are uh, conservative uh, along with me in that, in that sense. But I, I need to add this. If we say we believe human nature is fallen, then that means the people who occupy our rightly revered institutions are also fallen. Yep. So we can talk, you can talk about as a economic conservative that I want to conserve the institution of free enterprise and capitalism that's been built up around that. And I want to do that because I believe it's based upon a right understanding of human nature, namely people are greedy. <laughs> I mean, honestly, capitalism works, and, but it works for a bad reason. Mm -hmm. That bad reason is ultimately that people are greedy, and they're never, you know, if everybody was content with enough, then you wouldn't have people with the motivation, the greed motivation, to go and get more and produce more, but in turn that produces more jobs, all of that. And Adam Smith understood that in, mm -hmm. interestingly, 1776 mm -hmm. is when he writes Wealth of Nations and there's a nation coming into being at that time that you know, implements a system and it's been the greatest economic system that the world has ever seen. Why? Because it's based on right understanding of human nature. But we need to understand that even though the system has been good for the world, it's been good overall for our country and, our, and overall, not for everybody and certainly not equally, but overall it's been good. Even a a poor person in the United States is not as poor as poor people in other parts of the world because of that system we have. As great as that is, if human nature is fallen, then the titans of industry and the so-called masters of the universe, those guys are fallen too. And so as we revere the system we need to understand that, hey, those people can rip people off and do, and you hear about it all the time. Therefore, they need constraints. Yeah. It's not just the guy in, on Main Street. It's the guy on Wall Street who needs a constraints. Same thing for police. Mm -hmm. You know, I wrote a blog entry just a few weeks ago in the midst of all of the flack that our police are taking because of the police brutality that we've seen, the murder, frankly, in uh, Minneapolis that occurred. And so I wanted to write that to say, here's what the Bible teaches about government. Here's what the Bible teaches about military, police. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, writing that to say we should extol the police and we should be thankful for the police overall. But as we've seen, those are sinful human beings as well, right? Mm -hmm. So in all of that, I say to my conservative friends, let's, let's keep in mind that if we believe that human nature is sinful, it's also sinful uh, in terms of those who populate these things that, uh, that we rightly revere. So we need the constraint of the law, God's law, in the case of Scripture. And any approach to the Bible 
that takes us away from God's intended meaning leads us to go our own way, to make our own interpretation to fit with what we think is best, and what we think is best usually is not. Mm-hmm. So the Bible says, you know, famously in Proverbs 29 and verse 18, Proverbs 29, 18, in the King James it says, where there is no vision, the people perish. And you've heard politicians. That, that preaches really well. That yeah. preaches, where there's Good no speeches. visions. So we got to have a vision. Mm-hmm. But uh, actually in the NIV it's, it says, where there is no revelation, people cast mm-hmm. off restraint. Now, what's the relationship between vision, King James, and revelation, New International Version? Well, visions were a form of revelation. Mm-hmm. They were a form of God communicating to His prophets. He gave visions. He gave a vision to the prophet Isaiah, for example. And so what it's saying is where there is no word from God, where there is no revelation from God, then people cast off restraint. They go do their own thing. Where we don't have God's law, we're in a world of hurt. Why? Because people are. So we need those those kinds of, of constraints on us. In Psalm number 2, it says that uh, why do the kings of the earth... Uh, conspire together and imagine a vain thing. And then it says this in verse 3, the rulers of the world say, let us break the Lord's chains and throw off His shackles. And so we need that and we need to understand that from a Christian standpoint, that understanding that human nature is fallen, that it's sinful, is right, then policies that flow out of that are going to be better for people. Mm -hmm. But it also means that we need various levels of restraint in all of the policies and the institutions that are comprised of these fallen human beings. Good. So we're talking about um, the constraint. You were mentioning the constraint that God's Word provides mm. for us, the, the guide that it is for us. Mm-hmm. Um, that assumes that we rightly understand what it says. So yeah. what, are, what are the principles that right. we use to, to get right. to that meaning intended by the author? So here we're saying, you know, we got this old document over 200 years old in the Constitution now, and there's got to be a way to go about getting the, the meaning from that. There are these two broad schools of thought, and we started out by saying there are some parallels between doing that and then interpreting our ancient document, the, the Bible. And so how do we do that? How do we do that with the Bible? Well, we, likewise, we want, we want to be originalists. We want to know what the author's intended meaning was. And what the meaning was, the meaning is. Mm-hmm. So there was a principle that we learned in school called a text cannot mean what it never meant. So it doesn't mean something today that it didn't mean 2,000 years ago. It doesn't mean something different today. It means today what it meant then. But in order to get to what it meant then, 2,000 years ago, or more, if you're going in the Old Testament, in order to get to that, you have to have a a process to get the author's intended meaning. And that means setting it in its context. Mm -hmm. So another principle that we learned was context determines meaning. It's one of the... Folks, if you could just write that down, memorize it, needlepoint it. <laughs> Context determines It'd look really cute meaning. on a fireplace. <laughs> would. Context determines meaning. <laughs> but it applies to everything. It applies to conversations that you have now. You know, what I mean in talking to you, to you, is determined by the context in which I'm saying it. If we, if we will take that to heart, then we will not be inclined to take people's words out of context. Hmm. 
we will give them the benefit of being the originator of those words and we will want to know what they meant by those words and we will treat them fairly. Well, if we're talking about the author of the Bible, ultimately God, and he's using 40 different human authors to write the 66 books of the Bible, then we want to give God complete deference for us to understand what he intended to convey through these human authors. So how do we do that? We got to set it in context. Context determines meaning. And you got three levels of context really quickly. You've got historical context. You want to know what was going on at the time a particular book of the Bible was written, a particular passage in that book, what was happening. So having some history about it. That's why if you get a commentary on books of the Bible, they always start out with the occasion mm. when the purpose for writing it. They're giving you that history behind it. So there's the historical context. And then there's the literary context. And the literary context just says, what kind of book is this? What kind of book of the Bible? you got 66 different ones, and they're not all the exact same type of book. So many of them are letters. The New Testament, nearly half of it, are letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to individuals and churches. But some of those sections in the beginning of the New Testament are parables. A parable is different than a letter. And so there are ways that a parable uh, is to be understood. For example, a parable really just has all these details that lead up to one moral. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's a moral of the story. And that's what a parable does. So understanding that will keep you from getting too bogged down in all the details. Mm -hmm. You want to get the big idea out of the parable. Proverbs are different than the book of Revelation that we're going through uh, on Sunday mornings, oh, yeah. right? That's a different kind of literature. So there's the literary context that takes into account figures of speech. When there's a figure of speech used in the Bible, Jesus says, I am the door in John chapter 10. I am the door. Is that a, it's a figure of speech, right? I think so. <laughs> okay. And so, but the context tells you that, that this is a figure of speech. And so it's a normal interpretation to take into account literary devices like that. So historical, literary, and then grammatical. What are the words, you know, what do those words mean 2,000 years ago for that? Hebrew in the Old Testament, you have a Hebrew lexicon. That's a Hebrew dictionary. You've got uh, Greek dictionaries for the, uh, for the New Testament. So hist historical context, literary context, grammatical context. And uh, the same kind of thing has to happen in all communication. And now we try to apply that intentionally to the Bible. Hmm. Same thing judges have to do, should do, in trying to apply that same kind of thing to the Constitution. And in, in applying this originalist approach really as a protection for us, right? Whether we're talking about the Bible or we're talking about the Constitution. You know, and that's where all of this now, we've been talking for three weeks and we go through all the civics and, you know, the mechanisms for how a justice is appointed and conservative and liberal and all that. But why do we really care? Well, we care about taking a proper approach to understanding what the law is communicating, whether the law of God or the law of our government as embodied in the Constitution. Either way, we, take, we want to take great care with that because it's a protection. Mm -hmm. It protects us and it protects those that we care about and the, those that we embody this society with uh, and our churches with. It protects us from going our own way. It, it, it keeps us tethered to the text, to God's law or to humanity's law. So it elevates the written law over the law that we want to become. Mm 
mm. ourselves, which is a very, very good, healthy thing for us. When those constraints of interpretation are removed, now the written law, whether it's the law of God or it's the law of the land as given in the Constitution, it becomes malleable, it becomes changeable, and as we said, not all change is, is good, uh, contrary to what our progressive friends say. So here's an example of that. Just five years ago, 2015, the Supreme Court hands down the same-sex marriage decision. And it's 5-4 decision. Liberals, progressives, all on one side. You get one guy who was always in the middle, he's now retired, but Anthony Kennedy, and he wrote the, he wrote the decision. And, uh, and in that decision, he wrote for the majority. He said that it is unconstitutional to deny two people the right to marriage, even if they're of the same sex. And he kept using that, that term, two people. Hmm. And the conservative justices pointed out in their dissent, they said, you keep talking about two people, but what in this decision keeps it from being three people? or four people, or 10 people. You see, their point is, you've removed constraints. Mm -hmm. And once you remove those constraints, it's hard to get the genie back in the bottle now. And I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, but I will predict for you that in the future, that it will be deemed unconstitutional to confine marriage to two people of same sex or of opposite sex. Why can't it be three? Why can't it be four? And not only that, but it doesn't take much imagination to think about other ways that now marriage can be expanded. Mm -hmm. Age. And what's the youngest age at which someone can get married? Is it discrimination mm -hmm. to say? A 10-year-old? You know, we hate to think about these things. But once you remove those constraints, now it's wide open. And so, yes, it does preserve for us the sanctity of law as written as opposed to us becoming our own law and implementing what we think is best very often, very often without understanding what the consequences in the future are going to be. So when we untether ourselves from the gracious constraints of God's Word, we place ourselves and others in danger. That's why our second president, John Adams, said famously, we are a nation of laws and not of men. What he was saying is we want to be people who follow the written law as written. Hmm. Because if you don't, you are now at the whims of whoever happens to be in charge at the time. Hmm. That makes sense. And as applies to the Bible, then, um, you know, this is really important because if we think that there are things right. that should be in right. the Bible but are not, we can... Take the approach, if we take this approach, we can begin to try to find them. Or if we think that there are things in the Bible right. that shouldn't be there, then we can explain them away. The Bible teaches a lot of things, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. A lot of things that are out of step, increasingly out of step with the culture. Right. And just to be perfectly honest as a pastor, <laughs> there are things that as a fallen human being, I get first blush at what the Bible teaches about some things, and, and I have to really ingest that. I really have to meditate on that, think about that, because it doesn't strike me as good initially. Hell. Mm -hmm. I don't enjoy, if you enjoy thinking about hell, something's wrong. Mm -hmm. I don't enjoy thinking about hell. I, I, if I had my druthers, 
without thinking about it some more, there would be no hell. Now, I say without thinking about it because hell is necessary because of the holy character of God. And as I think about that, then, then I understand. But I also understand why we recoil from that. And I recoil from it as well. Mm. But guess what? I don't make it up. God has spoken. Yeah. And so now I have to be faithful to what God has spoken. So you take issues out of hell, but you can see churches and Christians all over have been expunging hell from their teaching and from their doctrinal statements. Why? Because it's out of step with the culture. Roles within the family. That's out of step in the culture. But what does God say about it? The exclusivity of Christ. That there is one God and there is one way to heaven and it goes through Jesus Christ. What the definition of marriage is and, and on it goes. All of those are being changed by professing Christians who are using not a living constitution approach, they're living a living sort of scripture Mm-hmm. approach to their interpretation. Fallen people need the protection of law. But it won't protect you if it doesn't remain as written, mm. whether God's law or man's law. And how you interpret both will determine whether you're taking. And I'll end with this. But these are a couple of Latin terms. I think it was, I think it was the British abolitionist uh, Samuel Rutherford who would say this. He would say it's either going to be this Latin term rex lex or lex rex. Rex lex in Latin is the king is law. And so he, Rutherford, would say if you don't have the law uh, as, as authoritative, then someone is going to be authoritative. Mm-hmm. The king becomes the law. Or in our case, the court can become the law. Yeah. But the, the proper way is lex rex, the law is king. And in the case of Christians, it's the Bible. And in the case of our governmental structure, we have been blessed to have a constitution that understands some things that the Bible says about human nature and has implemented that. And so we want that to be the law, not the opinions of people. We want to be a nation of laws and not of men. Hmm. That's great. This is this topic, we could go on with yeah. that. There's a lot that could be said. Um, if you wanted to learn more about this, we've got several uh, uh, classes and um, archives in our sermon section of our website where you could learn more about this approach to Scripture and how to, mm-hmm. how to understand it properly. Um, but thanks for watching with us sure. these last three weeks. And I want to invite you, if you don't already, to follow us on Facebook. And uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, make sure you uh, hit the subscribe button. There's a little bell there even. You can hit that to get a notification every time we publish something new. So thanks for watching again, and we'll see you in the next episode. If you have a question you'd like us to consider, you can send that into our email address, info at cbctrenton.com, or text it to us at 97000.